following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So for you children, you will know this. Taking medicine is rarely pleasant. Medicine tastes really bitter and bad. And even if medicine is made like juice and candy, you can still feel it's not the same as real juice and candy. Medicine also reminds you of your illness, which is definitely unpleasant. But more often than not, medicine is necessary because medicine helps recover your health and make your life more enjoyable. Without medicine, your illness may get worse and your life may be miserable. And this is indeed a small picture of repentance. Repentance itself can be painful because it is self-denying and humbling, isn't it? Repentance shows your unworthiness and exposes your ugly sins before holy God. So many Christians don't even like to talk about and think about repentance. And yet, as the Puritan pastor Thomas Watson put it wisely, repentance is just like a spiritual medicine that cures our spiritual illness. That is our sins. And some of you may wonder tonight if Christ has already paid the penalties of all of my sins, then why do I still have to confess my sins and ask for forgiveness and repent? Well, we just read a moment ago, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 5, regarding justification. As true believers, you are forgiven and justified in Christ, yes. You are free from God's judicial condemnation and eternal punishment, yes and yes. But you are not necessarily free from God's fatherly displeasure and temporal chastening. If you sin and not repent as a believer, you will fall under God's fatherly displeasure. That means your fellowship with God will be hindered, your conscience will be troubled, your sanctification will be weakened, and you will be disciplined by God as your loving Heavenly Father until and unless you repent. So you and I need a heavy, a daily dose of repentance and even a heavy dose as the divinely prescribed medicine. Is repentance your daily consistent practice? Is your prayer characterized by honest confession of your sins and humble pleading for forgiving and sanctifying grace from God? Tonight, our text, Psalm 51, will teach us how to repent, and more specifically, how to pray repentantly. Notice with me the superscription in the beginning of this psalm, which is also inspired, and as a result, tell us the context of this psalm. We are told that David penned this psalm when Nathan the prophet confronted him 
after he came into Bathsheba. And this is a brief summary of 2 Samuel chapter 11. David had relations with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. And Bathsheba got pregnant from David. In order to cover his adultery, David treacherously and secretly murdered Uriah. But God, in his mercy, sent prophet Nathan to confront David. And David repented, and he prayed the content of Psalm 51. He also penned this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a timeless instruction for us to learn how to repent. We all need this psalm, don't we? Because we all sin daily in our words, thoughts, and deeds. And sometimes we even sin grievously, don't we? So what I want to show you from this text is this. When you sin, you should pray for pardon. Confess your sins and pray for renewal. When you sin, you should pray for pardon. Confess your sins and pray for renewal. So consider this text with me under three headings. First of all, prayer of pardon. And secondly, prayer of confession. And thirdly, prayer for renewal. Let us now seek the Lord's help in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that without your spirit, we will be left in darkness and ignorance. So now we plead with you, send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our mind and quicken our heart and exalt Christ as we study and apply your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So first of all, from verses 1 and 2, we see how David prayed for God's pardon. Look at verse 1 with me. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So the Hebrew word for have mercy upon me is a verb meaning to grant unmerited favor to someone who is undeserving. So David knew that he was utterly unworthy, and yet he was also in need of God's pardoning grace. Notice what David did not do here. David did not appeal to any of his own good works. He didn't say, Oh Lord, see how I have been leading your people in and out, and how I have been fighting your enemies. So can you not just bypass my sins on account of my past faithfulness? No, he didn't say anything like that. He understood that there's nothing in him that he could ever boast about before God. There's no merit whatsoever in his best work. That alone, he just committed such grievous sins. Pardon is always an unmerited favor from the sovereign God. Notice as well, David did not despair. He didn't say, oh Lord, I know I have, I have sinned against you and I'm hopeless and I'm done, so do whatever you want to me. He didn't say that, but he boldly and humbly pleaded with God for mercy and grace on the basis of God's several attributes. We see David appeal to two divine attributes here in verse 1. The first, the attribute of loving kindness, which means God's covenantal 
loyalty. God promised to be faithful to his covenant people. God is faithfully committed to doing good to his people in spite of their sins, as long as they turn to God and trust in God. Second, we see David appeal to God's multitude of tender mercy, which means God's intention and action to deliver God's people from their misery, flowing from his infinite and unchangeable goodness. David needed God's mercy to deliver him from his guilt and the power and consequence of his sins. No misery can be worse than our sin. However, here we need to pause and ask the question, where's God's justice here? Where's God's justice here? God cannot show mercy and grace to sinners while compromising His holiness and justice, can He? The answer is found in verse 7. David says to God, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What is this hyssop here that can make David clean and whiter than snow? Hyssop is a plant used to dip blood in the Old Covenant sacrificial ceremony. It is nothing magic, but it is a symbol pointing to something else. You will remember in Exodus chapter 12, Israelites used the hyssop branches to dip the blood of lambs and apply the blood to their doorposts so that when the Lord was smiting Egyptian houses, the Lord would pass over the houses of Israelites because of the blood of lambs on their doorposts. It is a symbol of God's redeeming grace for His people. Also in Leviticus 14, hyssop is used to dip and sprinkle the blood of birds to cleanse a leper. So in other words, hyssop with the blood sprinkle is a picture of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice as atoning blood, which alone can cleanse us and pay the ransom for all of our sins. God, in His sheer mercy, sent Christ to suffer for our sins so that He can forgive and justify us in Christ while satisfying His justice. As an old covenant believer, David knew by shadow that God would pardon his sins on the ground of the coming Messiah and his atoning blood. But for us, as new covenant believers, Christ has already come, and so we should know more clearly that David, as well as you and I, are pardoned and cleansed of our sins on no other ground but Christ himself. Repentance is not any self-reliant effort to merit God's pardon. You do not repent in order to earn God's mercy. In fact, you cannot. Rather, true repentance is always a saving grace in Christ. You repent by faith, laying hold of God's mercy in Christ. Your repentance should be a believing 
repentance. It is by God's loving kindness and mercy in Christ that God would not remember David's and your transgression in wrath, but rather blot out the record of them as if God had never remembered any of your sins. It is by God's loving kindness and mercy in Christ that God would not spit out David and you, but rather purified David and you thoroughly as if David and you had never sinned whiter than snow. It's by God's loving kindness and mercy in Christ that God would not drive David and you out of his loving presence forever, but restore and welcome David and you to communion with him. Brothers and sisters, perhaps you are wondering tonight how this psalm can apply to you because you have never committed such grievous sins as adultery and murder as David did. And yet remember, every sin, every sin deserves God's just condemnation. There is no sin that is so small that you can ever deal with apart from God's grace and mercy in Christ. You need the same pardoning grace and mercy here and now, just as David did 3,000 years ago. It doesn't matter how long you have been a believer. It doesn't matter how long you have been serving the church of God. You need God's mercy to pardon and cleanse your sin today as much as you did when you were first converted. On the other hand, perhaps tonight you are struggling with a deep, deep sense of the guilt of your sin. You feel hopeless. You wonder how God could ever pardon you. Perhaps that's a lie you have ever told somebody else. Perhaps that's the abortion you have ever committed. Perhaps that's some slander you have ever committed against somebody else. You feel hopeless. But brothers and sisters, do not despair. But be like David. Cling to God for his great mercy and free grace in Christ Jesus. If God could ever forgive David then, God can certainly forgive you as long as you repent in Christ and unto Christ. We have seen how we should pray for God's fatherly pardon according to God's mercy and grace. But pardon happens only when we sincerely confess our sins. This brings us to the second point, prayer of confession. So second, we will see from verses 3 through 7 how David confesses his sins, which is an essential part of our repentance. Confession of sin is, pre, is a prerequisite of God's fatherly pardon. And this does not mean that our confession can somehow merit or earn God's pardon. No, pardon of sin is an act of God's free grace. And confession itself, too, is God's free grace by the Spirit. But confession is still necessary. Confession is still a necessary condition to pardon. Are we not told in 1 John 
Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 9, as we just read a moment ago. If, notice this conditional clause, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, this text describes, teaches us at least four things about confessing our sins. First of all, confession of sin means to confess our particular sins. Look at verse 3 with me. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. So here you see David is not merely saying, I'm a sinner and I have sinned. Rather, he is aware of his particular sins when he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This language really implies particularity and concreteness of our confession. David must have recalled how he had indulged his lust and covetousness over his neighbor's wife. David must have recalled how he had wickedly premeditated and exercised adultery and murder. Do you know what your particular sins are when you confess your sins? Don't be satisfied with general and vague confession, but be specific and concrete in your confession. Confess your particular sins particularly. Which sins you have committed, what duties you have omitted, and in what ways. Name it before God whenever you confess your sins. The second thing we see regarding confession is that confession of sin means to embrace the responsibility of our sin. Again, verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. So by way of contrast, we see Adam and Eve try to find excuses for their sins. After eating the forbidden tree, the forbidden fruit, Adam blamed Eve and even blamed God by saying, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And likewise, Eve blamed the serpent for deceiving her. Nobody blamed him or herself. But here we see David did not try to find excuses for himself. He did not try to find any excuse for any of his sins. He did not say, Oh Lord, I know I have sinned, but I would not have lost it if Bathsheba had not taken a bath there, and if Uriah could have been home more. They are causing me temptation. They are part of the problem. No, David didn't say anything like that. David simply took the blame on himself by saying, I know my transgressions and my sin is before me. This is a sincere confession of sin worked by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, when you sin, do you confess it to the Lord by taking the full blame to yourself? Or do you try to shift the blame 
to something or someone else. Oh, it's because of my child getting too noisy that I get angry. Oh, it's because this person is too irritating that I had judgment against him in my heart. Well, other people or other things might be tempting you to sin, and yet it is still your sin. So stop blaming anyone or anything else for your own sin, but rather bring each of your sins to God as it is. A third thing we see regarding confession is that confession of sin is always God-centered and based on God's law. Look at verse 4 with me. Here David confessed, against you, you only. So here David was not denying the fact that he had harmed Bathsheba and Uriah. No, but his point is that sin is bad, not only because it hurts others, but first and foremost because sin breaks God's holy law and sin offends God's holy nature. And that's why he said in the second part of verse 4, I have sinned and done what's evil in your sight. Sin is always defined and condemned primarily by God according to his law. So brothers and sisters, what is your motivation when you confess your sin? Is it just because your sin hurts others and that makes you feel bad? Is it because sin brings you some kind of painful and inconvenient consequences so you confess it? That's not true repentance. Do you grieve and hate your sin because you have offended the holy God? This is a true repentance. Do you grieve and hate your sin because you have grieved the loving God who gave even his only begotten son to die for you? This is a true repentance. Do you grieve and hate your sin because it's your sin that caused Jesus to hang on the cross? This is a true repentance. Do you examine your heart daily according to the Ten Commandments and all its implications and repent of both your commission and omission of the law of God? A fourth thing we see regarding confession is that confession of sin is to acknowledge the corruption of our nature. Look at verse 5 with me. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So here, David was not trying to blame his mother for his own sin. No, he was simply saying that his actual sins of adultery and murder were a result of an even deeper problem. That is his original sin inherited from Adam. We know Adam was the covenant head and root of all mankind. So when Adam sinned and fell in the garden, Adam's guilt was imputed and his corruption of nature was passed down to all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation. So all human beings except Jesus 
are already sinners with guilt and corrupt nature at the moment of conception. And why can Jesus be an exception? It's because Jesus alone was conceived by an extraordinary generation, the supernatural virgin birth without a biological father. So Jesus alone was born sinless, and thus Jesus alone could be our Savior, but not you and I, not you and I. Because of our original corruption, all of us are by nature inclined to all evil and opposed to all good. No one can escape from such original sin. From our cor corruption of nature proceed all actual sins. Even though we are now saved and no longer in bondage of sin, praise the Lord, and yet the corruption of nature still remains in us and daily tempts us to sin in our words, thoughts, and deeds. The reason why we sin is not primarily because of any external influence, like bad examples, but we sin primarily and fundamentally because of our internal corruption of nature which we were born with. Brothers and sisters, realize that the very moment you were conceived in your mother's womb, no matter how cute you look on the ultrasound image, you, the cute little tiny baby, were nothing less than a sinner with your whole person, soaked with the corruption of sin, needing repentance and all other saving graces. Should not this reality humble you and drives you to seek the mercy of God, you will not appreciate how much you need Jesus' redeeming grace and how much redemption Jesus has accomplished for you unless you first realize and confess how corrupt you are even to the marrow of your bone, even since you were conceived in your mother's womb. You need God's pardoning and cleansing grace, not only for your sinful deeds, actions, behaviors, but also for the sinful corruption of your nature. And you cannot mortify it unless you first confess it. So we have seen how David prayed for God's pardon according to God's mercy. We have also seen how David confesses sins for this end. But now, we will see David desire something else other than pardon. David desired God to renew his life after sinning. And this brings us to the third point of our sermon. So third, from verses 8 to the very end of this text, we will see how David prayed for God's renewing grace after he sinned. We will see three things which David prayed for, for God's renewal grace. So first, we see David is asking God to renew his joy. Look at verse 8 and 12 with me. Verse 8, we read, Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. 
So although David was confident about God's pardon, yet joy did not seem to come immediately. In our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, paragraph 3, speaking of the perseverance of the saints, we are taught that although true believers will never totally and finally fall away from faith, nevertheless, if they fall into grievous sins, they may be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts and their conscience wounded. So here we see a wounded conscience in David's life. A wounded conscience hindered David from rejoicing in the Lord. As David said in verse 8, that his bones were broken by God, as he were. Sin itself is not only bitter, but sin may also bring even more bitterness, even after you have been pardoned. And that's why in verse 8, David prayed that he could hear joy and gladness again. And his broken bones could rejoice, and the joy of salvation could be restored, he prayed. A lack of joy for salvation will also hinder David from testifying God's loving kindness to other people. So David said in verse 13 that God renews his joy of salvation, and he will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So whenever you share the gospel with unbelievers, you are indeed testifying God's loving kindness for sinners. And you cannot do that until and unless you truly experience the joy of salvation according to God's loving kindness. Do you lack joy of salvation because you are still struggling with the guilt and sorrow of your previous, previous sins. But remember this, brothers and sisters, God is pleased to restore your joy as long as you turn to Him from your sins. So plead with God to pour out His love into your heart by the Spirit. Christian joy is not merely a nature emotion, but Christian joy is a supernatural fruit by the Holy Spirit. Plead with the Holy Spirit to impress upon your heart the glorious gospel truth that God loved you so much that He let His only begotten Son to even die the cursed death on your behalf. That's your joy of salvation. The second thing we see about David's prayer for renewing grace is that David asked God to renew his sanctification. Look at verse 10 with me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. So here, heart and spirit both refer to our mind, affection, and will. David needed God's mercy not only for forgiveness, but also for sanctification. So do you. David needed a clean heart that hates lust and murder, but desires holiness and righteousness. So do you. David needed a steadfast spirit that is consistently fleeing from temptation and obeying God's law. So do you. 
David could never do this by his own strength. Neither can you. Notice the verb here in this verse, in verse 10, create. It is the same word used for God's act of creation in Genesis chapter 1. In other words, David's heart was like a dirty house full of mud and waste after being flooded. So David needed nothing less than the Spirit's creating power to cleanse his heart and renew his spirit. So do you. Need such creating power to cleanse you. Sanctification is utterly impossible without the Holy Spirit. And this is true for the sense of both old and new covenants. And that is also why David cried out to God in verse 11, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why was David asking that God would not take away the Holy Spirit from him? David was not saying that he could somehow lose the Holy Spirit in the sense of losing salvation. No, the Bible consistently teaches that true believers will never lose their salvation if they are truly saved. But David's petition is essentially that God would not take away the Spirit's gracious influence, such as His power, counsel, comfort, which are necessary for sanctification. Our sin grieves and quenches the Spirit and thus will hinder our salvation. Our sin can easily lead to even more other sins. And that's why we desperately need to plead with the Holy Spirit to renew our obedience. Brothers and sisters, are you struggling with spiritual weakness because of your, your previous sins? Are you afraid that you might fall into the same sins and even more grievously. Pray, pray earnestly for the Spirit's power to cleanse you and to renew your spirit and revive your faith and obedience. He will do it. Pray with faith in the Holy Spirit. The third thing we see regarding praying for renewing grace is that David asks God to renew his worship. God, David prays that God will renew his worship. Look at verse 15 with me. O oh Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. So pardon, we have seen how David prayed for pardoning grace. But pardon is not the end. But pardon is only a means to a higher end. And the higher end is to worship God by praising Him. Pardon brings a peace of conscience so that we may once again approach God confidently and joyfully. But it's very likely that even though we receive pardon, we may still struggle with the sense of guilt and shame and sorrow, and thus we are discouraged to worship and praise God. And that's why we need to pray with David in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praises. There is nothing wrong 
for Christians to feel sorrow over their sin. I do hope that all of you can feel your sorrow strongly whenever you sin, and that sorrow should drive you to Christ. There's nothing wrong for Christian sorrow over our sin. In fact, you should feel sorrow over your sin. But our sorrow should not hinder us from worshiping God. Here's the point. Our sorrow should never hinder us from worshiping God. Are you tempted to stop worshiping God because you somehow feel very bad about your sins? But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, never stop worshiping God no matter how you feel. Come to worship God no matter what and bring your sins and your sorrows to God with a broken and contrite heart which God will not despise but will delight in. What better place can you find for giving and sanctifying grace than corporate worship where the means of grace are so heavily exercised. Come to worship, brothers and sisters, and ask God to renew your worship by opening your lips to praise Him for His loving kindness for you. Come to worship and ask God to renew your worship by opening your heart to Him and by applying the grace of sanctification upon you. Your sorrow over sin not only should not hinder you from worship, but should also be part of your worship. Look carefully at verses 16 and 17. Here we read in verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. This, O oh God, you will not despise. So here, sacrifice and burnt offering imply the context of corporate worship in the Old Covenant. Now, David was not saying that God did not like sacrifices per se, no. But what he's saying is, God would not accept his sacrifices and burnt offerings without a repentant heart. And why not? It's because sacrifices and burnt offering under the Old Covenant were a picture and foreshadow of atoning sacrifice of the coming Messiah. So they were meant to teach sinners their need to repent and believe in the promised Messiah, just like an illustration of the gospel. So sacrifices and burnt offering in the worship must always be accompanied by repentance of sin and reliance upon God's mercy. That is why I hope you notice that uh, every worship service here has a corporate confession of sin. We either use the confession printed in the bulletin as we did, as we, you, you have already done um, probably in the morning, or uh, you are encouraged to join the corporate prayer, which usually includes confession of sin. Why do we do that in the church? It is because repentance is a part of our worship. It is also because corporate confession encourages and reminds you to confess your sins daily in your own private closet. It also teaches you what categories of sins you ought to confess. Worship without repentance cannot please God. 
And very likely, steadily, this is what David had been doing before he penned this Psalm 51. Remember, David was not confronted by Nathan and did not really repent until after Bathsheba bore a son for David. That means there were at least nine months where David did not repent of his sins while very likely he still went to worship with sacrifices and burnt offerings. But God knew his heart and God did not delight in his sacrifice and burnt offering only because David's heart was wrong. David could not worship God rightly until he truly repented of his sins with a broken and contrite heart. Brothers and sisters, do you come to worship sometimes with hypocrisy and self-righteousness, thinking that as long as you attend the worship service, you don't need to repent with your sins? Repent tonight if that's your heart. Repentance should always happen in and through worship. Today, you don't have the sacrifices and burnt offerings in the worship, but you do have the new covenant means of grace, that is word, prayer, and sacraments. So whenever you hear God's word being read, preached, prayed, and sung, whenever you see the sacraments being administered, grasp this means of grace to convict you, to drive you to repentance. Whenever there is corporate confession of sin in the worship, participate in it with your lips and your hearts. Come to worship God with a broken and contrite heart as a poor and needy sinner. Now, in the last two verses, we see David is concerned about the worship at the corporate level. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and a whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. So here Zion represents God's people with God dwelling with them among them. And that is the church under the Old Covenant. And the walls of Jerusalem are a picture of their spiritual strength. And sacrifices and whole burnt offering imply corporate worship. So David was asking God to strengthen his church. But the question is, why did he suddenly shift the focus of his prayer from personal to a public level? Why is that? It is because David knew that he was the king. And so his personal sin cannot but have a public influence on God's people as a whole. David's bad example would have grieved and discouraged God's people, and even tempted others to sin. Certainly, David knew that the sword would never depart from his household as God's judgment, and the peace of God's people would be greatly disturbed because of his sins. David also knew that Israel was a group of sinners being vulnerable to sin and needing repentance just as much as himself. 
This is why David, after praying for his personal pardon and renewal, he now prayed that God would strengthen his people and preserve their worship in spite of his personal sins on the ground of God's own pleasure. This principle applies to you as well. Your personal sins, brothers and sisters, would almost always influence your church more or less in one way or another since you are a member of the body of Christ. To say the very least, does not your sin weaken your love for the church? Does not your sin weaken your prayer for your church? Does not your sin weaken your participation in the worship which is a part of the church? Of course it does in every way. Also, your repentance should always remind you that you are not the only sinner needing repentance in the church, but everyone else in the church needs daily repentance as much as you do. So pray with confidence that Christ will strengthen His church in spite of your sin, and that Christ would even use your fruit of repentance to bless the whole church. What do you do, brothers and sisters, when you sin? Do not despair and do not neglect either, but take the divinely prescribed medicine that is to repent in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Whenever you sin, run to the loving Father for His mercy in Christ to pardon and cleanse you. Bring your sins to God by honest, deep, particular, and God-centered confession. Plead with God to restore and renew your joy, obedience, and worship by the Holy Spirit. God will hear such prayers of repentance because repentance is a saving grace already purchased in Christ. It is Christ who calls you and empowers you to repent. It is Christ who embraces you into his loving bosom whenever you turn from your sin and turn to him. Finally, for those of you who have no concern for your sin and no desire for repentance whatsoever, I want to warn you this evening, it is very likely that you have not yet been saved. I plead with you tonight, cry out to the Lord Jesus to give you a new heart and turn from your sin and turn to Christ tonight. You don't have to perish, but repent and be saved through repentance unto Christ. Remember, Christ says, unless you repent, you shall perish. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.